0: good morning. It's, um, it's great to have you join us this morning at Bankry Christian Fellowship Church. Uh, if it's your first time here, if you're visiting, or if it's your first time here for a little while, it's great to see you here. Um, I hope you feel at home. I hope you feel very welcome. Um, and I hope you enjoy your time here with us this morning as we come to worship God. Um, this morning is a, a hugely significant day. It's a massively significant moment. Um, And that is not because we're no longer wearing masks as a legal requirement in worship. Today is a massively significant day because it's Palm Sunday. And it's a massively significant day because this morning we get to crown Christ as king. We get to to sing about Christ as our king and our savior. We get to, to pray to him. And we get to hear from him as we open his word together later on this morning. So today is a day of, of celebration. It is a day of great significance. And, and whatever your week has been like, whatever your circumstances that have taken you to this day, they may have been difficult. They may continue to be difficult in the future, but we have this moment where we can come and we can reflect on the kingship of Christ, reflect on Him as the one who rules all things and the one who is good, the one who ultimately went to the cross for us that we might be able this morning sing and and know him as our saviour regardless of our circumstances. So we're going to, to read some verses from Mark chapter 11 verses 1 to 11 which tell us of the events of the very first Palm Sunday and then we're going to sing together. Mark chapter 11, reading from verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you'll find a cold tide on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it with the twelve.
1: Well, good morning. It's lovely to, to have you with us and to worship the Lord together and to hear from Him in His words. And it's quite a change of scene, isn't it, these verses that we read compared to the verses we read at the start of the service, you know, where we were thinking about Jesus arriving into Jerusalem and everyone's excited, shouting, Hosanna, here's the King. It's a very different scene in these verses in Luke 22. And they can be quite perplexing, not because in themselves these verses are hard to understand. I don't, I don't think they are. We, we, we read them. We, we see what's going on. But it's just because they seem so out of place in some ways. I mean, this book of the Bible that we're reading, Luke, was written to tell us about Jesus Christ, to tell us that this man, Jesus, is the long promised deliverer. He is God's Son who's been sent from heaven to rescue human beings from their separation from God, to bring them into the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus' ministry to to reveal that to us is marked out by, by healings, by exorcisms, by even raising people from the dead. And yet, there is this undeniable thread that weaves its way through The story of the ministry of Jesus, and it's this thread of of opposition. And you read through any of the Gospels and you see that little by little it, it, it builds up what starts out as a little bit of concern, turns into a bit of jealousy, turns into hatred, and now by the time we read these verses we're well down the road towards murder. For all of the wonder of who Jesus is and what He has come to do, it just seems so jarring for us to read this, that He would suffer in these ways. How does that make sense? If He is the Son of God, how could He suffer like this? Because what we're reading here is where, to use Jesus' own words in verse 53, we enter into the hour of darkness. The hour of darkness. He says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And so we start with Jesus' friends. Jesus had handpicked 12 men to invest in. They were with Jesus for three years. They saw everything that he did. They heard everything that he said. They saw the manner of man that he was. You know, the things that you don't get to see about me is what I'm like at the end of a long day when I get home. You don't get to see that. And that's good. For these 12 friends of Jesus, they saw him at the end of every busy day. And what they observed was that this was one who had an unbroken devotion to God. There was no there was no persona when he was out healing people and a different persona when he was back in the house. He was a man of unbroken devotion to God. That's what they saw, three years. And it's what makes what happens here just so heartbreaking. I mean, we specifically see Judas and Peter, and to be honest, you read these verses and you think, with friends like this, who needs enemies? So first of all, I want you to see that this hour of darkness that we enter into is the hour of betrayal, and what a betrayal. Jesus has come to this specific place at the Mount of Olives, and uh, you would uh, read earlier that it it was His custom to do that, verse 39, this was a common practice for Him. He would go to this place at the end of a busy day because this was a place of quiet, this was a place of retreat. This was a place of prayer. And now his friend Judas, well, he has that insider knowledge. Because you see, the the authorities, they've been wanting to do something about Jesus for some time, but how can they get to Him? How can they arrest Him? If they do that, then uh, the the people are going to be upset. He's very popular. They could start a riot if they try and arrest Jesus. But if only we could get Him on His own, if only we could get Him where no one else could see… Well, Judas can provide them with that information. And so he leads them to this garden in the middle of the night. And he identifies Jesus to the authorities with a kiss of friendship. There's been lots of ingenious suggestions as to why this friend of Jesus would behave in this way, especially bearing in mind all the privileges that he had, just like any of the other disciples. Some think Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand here, you know, engineering circumstances that would leave Jesus no choice but to finally overthrow these Roman occupiers and take the throne of Israel. The problem with this is that in the Gospels, Judas is very often associated with money. His name appears side by side with questions about money more frequently than on any other subject. And in fact, earlier in this chapter, if you were to read it, we're told that Jesus agreed to betray Jesus in exchange for what? For money. That doesn't sound like someone on a noble cause. That sounds like someone selling out a friend for personal gain. It seems clear that despite his closeness to Jesus of Nazareth, Judas did not quite Believe, or at least he, he did not want to be subject to Jesus. Jesus' message of care for the poor, his warnings about the dangers of wealth, just became too harsh on the ears of Judas. This is the man who was stealing money out of the disciples' money bag. You know, he couldn't listen to that anymore. And there's a warning here, surely, isn't there? physical proximity to Jesus, a closeness to the things associated with Jesus, or even to the words of Jesus, on their own, they do not mean a thing unless we have actual personal faith and trust in Jesus. Not enough to just be near Him, around Him. You've got to know Him, believe in Him, And there's many people for whom that's the case. Maybe there's some here who from the earliest memories that you you can conjure up, you've been around the things associated with Jesus. People who've had the privilege of being brought up in Christian families, going to church. Oh, I've always been around Jesus. But how easy it is to be in that situation and actually never to know Him. And you need to know Him. What Jesus has come to bring is not just information about Him, it is to bring a living relationship with Him. And that's why, and I hope this comes as no disappointment to anyone here, that is why we are not content to simply amass churchgoers. That's not our aim, really. It is to call people to come and know Jesus. To find forgiveness of sins, to enter into the family of God, not just to come and be around the stuff related to Jesus, but to point you to Him. Because you know what? These Sunday gatherings are great, and uh, for those of us who are able to be maskless is really great, isn't it? But I can point you to something even greater. It's the one who we've come to listen to today, the one who we've come to worship today, to Jesus Christ don't settle for coming and being somewhere near Him. Know Him. It is possible. That is why He's come. Judas betrays. But actually in the garden here where Judas betrays Jesus, it brings about this situation where it actually reveals something about all the other disciples. Because even though they have been with Jesus, They reveal that they haven't quite understood Jesus. I mean, look at that question in verse 49. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? It's a little bit like when a child asks this question Daddy, can I have one of these biscuits? That's what's going on here. Lord, shall we strike with the swords? And off comes the high priest's servants here. They really haven't quite grasped it, have they? Who could walk with Jesus for three years and think that Jesus is going to say, yeah, strike them with the sword? But they did. They did. They still had this misguided hope That Jesus was somehow going to lead some some powerful uprising against the Roman rulers. They haven't appreciated that, that actually this is how it has to be. Jesus brings peace. Jesus brings restoration. Does no one understand? And so he says to those who've come for him, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus, He calls out their deceitfulness of these religious leaders. You could have arrested me at any time, but you wait for the hour of darkness to do it, because this is the kind of people you are. This is the kind of deeds that you're setting about, deeds of wickedness that need to be hidden in darkness. But more than that, this is their hour. This is the time when evil forces will be let loose on Jesus Christ. And so they take Jesus to the high priest's house, under arrest, awaiting trial. And our attention turns specifically to another disciple, Peter. And uh, the other Gospels tell us, actually, it was Peter who cut off that guy's ear in the garden. Um, And here he is, bold Peter. Earlier in this chapter, you would be able to read that he says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death." And I think he truly believed that. But now that the chips are down, it's time to show your hand, Peter. Well, already in verse 54, he's following at a distance. But he's there waiting to see what's going to happen next but this is peter he's ready to die he's ready to go to prison and while that all of that confidence is undone not by the interrogation of a high priest not by putting him into shackles and making him stand in the dock and answer for his faith no by the simple observation of a servant girl I mean, of someone who in those days literally had no standing whatsoever. There was nothing that she could do to him. And she simply says to him, this man also was with him. And I'm sure Peter feels the eyes of all of those gathered around that fire turning to him. And perhaps before he knew it, the words were out woman. I do not know him. Well, this is repeated a couple of more times. Notice that Peter is given an hour in between the second and third denial to kind of think it through, but the result is the same. So, when someone says, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean, well, Peter just denies everything. Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And right at that moment, the cock crowed, and it all comes back to him. In the panic of the situation, he hadn't even thought about this. Just a few hours earlier, Jesus had predicted this very happening. For all of his boldness, Jesus had told Peter, hey, in a few hours' time, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny that you've ever known me. So what is it, you think, that caused this change in Peter? bold Peter who's ready to go to prison and to die, and a few hours later, a quivering wreck when a servant girl says, you you were with Jesus. What made the difference? Well, one of the obvious things is that the environment changed. Um, I I don't know if, if you can relate to this. I may be revealing too much about myself, but do you know what it's like to hold opinions that are unpopular? Now, what I mean by that is, you know, opinions that you feel that you can express at home, but if you were out and about, you know it's just not worth telling anyone that you really think that. Oh, it looks like it's just me, well, f- scrub, scrub that from the record. Well, something like that goes up here, isn't there? That the pressure to conform to a situation is, is unbearable at times you just can't say what you really think you just go along with what's there and we can understand that isn't it there's a strong influence to conform to those around us but i think there's more than that going on here what changed for peter was when jesus was arrested in the garden peter's own misconceptions about jesus they've now come to the fore And now Peter is wrestling again with, well, who is Jesus? What has Jesus come to do? Is He really the Messiah that we've been waiting for for so long? Because if He is, I I can't make sense of how He gets arrested and now is being beaten up in a room in the high priest's house. I mean, our leaders hate Jesus. If He's really the Messiah, then surely they they would recognize Him and follow Him this isn't the kind of Messiah I was expecting. And Peter wavers. Because if he's not very sure about Jesus, if he's not very sure that Jesus is who he says he is, then why on earth would Peter be willing to go to prison and die? And in similar ways today, followers of Jesus sometimes look at the turns that their own lives take. And we wonder, if the Lord Jesus really cared about me, why would He let this happen? Why would He put me through this? I I I thought trusting Jesus was going to make life easier, and it just seems to have been made harder. Why is all this going on? But the same principle of what is happening to Jesus, he tells us, happens to his people. The pattern of following Jesus is there is suffering now and there is glory later. The problem that Peter and the disciples had was well, surely it's glory now. Jesus goes the way of suffering, he goes the way of the cross. And he says, All who come after me should expect to do likewise but look at what is in the midst of this for Peter. I can't skip over this detail in verse 61. It's, it's compelling to me. So, verse 60, immediately, while Peter's still speaking, the cock crows, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The Lord looked at him. What do you suppose is in that look? Look. When people let us down, or even worse than that, if if, if someone really, how would I put it, someone really does the dirty on you, you know, someone betrays you, it's typical, isn't it, to be actually unable to look at that person. Um, I'm not ready to see you yet. You can relate to that. I can't even look at you. I'm so angry. You know, that kind of thing. But Jesus here, who has just been betrayed, really, he does the opposite. Jesus does not look away from Peter. You see, when Jesus warned Peter that he would deny him, listen to what else he had to say to him. He said, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The look of Jesus here in verse 61 is not, it's not a harsh look, it's not a death stare, it is a look of compassion. Jesus does not turn His back on His people. Even when they fail, even when they deny Jesus by their actions, by their words, now, Jesus does not turn away. His compassionate gaze is fixed. And if you're a Christian here today, you should be mighty relieved about that. I know I am. And you could think as you look on here, well, Jesus has plenty to occupy his mind. He's under arrest, he's facing humiliation, he's going to have to answer to the highest religious authority in the country, he's facing a beating death, and yet he is listening out, and he's listening to hear the cock crow so that he can make a point of looking with compassion to his friend Peter and remind him of the promises he's made to him. And so the Christian who has made a mess of things again, who has got life's priorities all mixed up again, who has been consumed by self all over again, who has allowed pride to stop us making godly choices again, Jesus sees all of that, and more beautiful than that, He sees you. And He does not look away from you, He looks to you and he says, I'm still here, turn back to me. I will not reject you. And that was lived out in Peter's life. That was lived out in Peter's life. For all of the despair, that gaze of Jesus drew him back. For Judas it was the opposite. It's as if Jesus gives him this chance, doesn't he? Judas, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? There's a question there. What are you going to do, Judas? Judas betrays, and Judas destroys himself. The gaze of Jesus is upon you if you trust in Him. But he says, turn back. That's the key, isn't it? It's not a gaze just so that he can look at how beautiful you are. It is a gaze that says, come back to me, to draw you back to know his forgiveness, his love, and his grace. And especially this is powerful here because this is where Jesus is giving himself. I mean, I almost get the sense here from how this runs into verse 63, you know, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him, that it's almost as if it's between beatings that Jesus makes the point of looking to Peter. And. There is such power in that gaze because it is as Jesus is giving Himself, and not for His own sake, but as He gives Himself in the place of sinners. The Lord Jesus in all of His sinlessness has come to take the place of sinners, to bear the penalty they deserve. And here, as He does that, and as you would see reflected also on the cross, that Jesus would even pray, Father, forgive them, or they don't know what they're doing. Yes, this hour of darkness is the hour of betrayal, the hour of denial, and not surprisingly, when it comes before uh, this, this show trial, it is the hour of rejection. The religious authorities begin their humiliation of Jesus. They have Him softened up by these uh, guards who are holding Him, beating Him, mocking Him, and they gather together the council who will sit in judgment over Jesus. The decision's been made already. He is deserving of death. It's just a matter of making sure that they have the proper grounds to kill Him. And the surest way to achieve that is by trying to get him to blaspheme. In his triumphant entry into Jerusalem that we read earlier, it was a bold declaration that Jesus was making. Sometimes we we miss that. Jesus was claiming to be God's promised Messiah, their true rescuer king who comes to Jerusalem humble and riding on a donkey. And so, here these religious authorities, they urge him. They say, well, so if you are the Christ, then tell us. But Jesus doesn't play these men at their game. He exposes these judges for what they are. They are wicked men who hate justice. If He speaks, they won't believe Him. If He asks them their opinion, they won't give an answer. These are politicians determined to preserve their own position at any cost. So, Jesus is condemned in their eyes, whether He answers or not. But there is a great irony in what is taking place here. This sham court sits in judgment over Jesus, not at all realizing that they are in fact daring to stand in judgment over the judge of all the earth. I mean, look at what Jesus tells them in verse 69. He says there's a new chapter a way to open, and they will see Him again, not in weakness, but in glorious might and authority, because, as He puts it there, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The one who seems to be condemned by this human court is actually the one who will stand in judgment over the whole world seated at the right hand of God. That's the seat of authority. The Son of Man. The Son of Man. One of the ways that Jesus preferred to talk about Himself was with that title, the Son of Man. Uh, We saw it earlier in our reading, didn't we? And and that term is so important because it picks up on some language from the Old Testament. Uh, You find it specifically in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel the prophet looks forward to a day when the Son of Man will come, and He is this human divine figure who would be granted dominion over all the peoples and nations of the earth, and everyone would serve Him. He's the one who's described as reigning over an everlasting kingdom. Jesus says, this is who I am, and you're going to see that one day. And it's that that leads them into their final question. Are you the son of God then? And the reply that Jesus gives, it seems unclear to us, doesn't it? He says, you say that I am. But you see in their response, there's nothing ambiguous about that. They say, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. It's almost as if Jesus says, well, you say so. You say so. The charge of blasphemy can be brought, for in this Jesus has claimed to be equal with God. And from here, Jesus will go from this religious trial before the Roman ruler Pilate, who though he could find no charge to bring against Jesus, condemned Him to be crucified. And it all seems so horrific. This truly is, we really are entering the hour of darkness, Betrayal, being disowned, rejected, condemned. I mean, who could bear up under such strain? But friends, Luke, who writes this gospel, wants us to see that though this is us entering into the hour of darkness, this continues to be the hour of control. The hour of control. Because the one at the heart of this perfect storm is the one who is in control of God all of it. I encourage you to go back and read all of this chapter later today because that screams out from this chapter. Well, what about this rejection, Jesus? Go back to verse 37, the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Well, what about your friends disowning you, Jesus? Jesus, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Well, what about Judas's betrayal, Jesus? The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. The powers of evil descend upon Jesus in a way never seen before. And they do so surely in the firm belief that if they could just destroy him, If they could destroy Him, they would have some victory against God. They would bring an end, God's rescue plan for rescuing sinful human beings. But what they could not see is that God is even greater than they understand. So great, so utterly sovereign that He was using even this hour of darkness to bring about the salvation that He promised, because God's rescue plan only comes to its pinnacle here as Jesus is enthroned on the cross, as He sheds His blood and dies in the place of sinners. Praise be, this time next week we're going to be rejoicing in His resurrection that confirms all that we need to know about that death of Jesus Christ, that it was accepted before God, it was a victorious death. And what comes with it is the promise that for every one who comes to Him in simple faith, believing that He is your Savior, who died in your place, that all of the benefits of his life, his death, his resurrection are yours. You can know him, like we were thinking of earlier. Here we're being shown that Jesus had to suffer. His disciples couldn't fathom it at the time, but they are the ones who would go on to to write and record for us. He had to suffer. For there was no other way to be right with God. And Jesus here gives us encouragement that He understands so that when the whirlwind does seem to be throwing life into chaos, we don't come to Jesus as one who who just can't relate to any of that. No, He's described for us as our sympathetic Savior and High Priest who's able to encourage us in all of our struggles, because He's struggled in every way. That even from the chaos of the whirlwind, God can bring about something so wonderful as salvation. And even in the chaos of the whirlwind of your life right now, God is able to work remarkable things in you, to draw you closer to Him, to teach you more about His Son, to provide you with the grace that you need day by day. And so our gaze is turned again to Jesus, as it should be as we enter into this particular week, where it is this great combination for us, a week of of mission, but it's also a week of remembrance, isn't it? That it was in this week that the Son of God, that He gave Himself for us. Jesus entered into the hour of darkness, so that ultimately we would never be lost in darkness. Father, we do thank you for our Savior. We thank you for just what is revealed of him here, Lord, that even when he was attacked, even when he was betrayed, that he, he did not respond to that in kind. But, Lord, he continued to be that, that example of godliness, of love and care. And we thank you that that took him all the way to the cross. So that for sinners, even sinners like us, we can come and find forgiveness. We can come and know Jesus. We can come and find the reason why you've put us here, to live for him. And we thank you for that compassionate gaze of Jesus. Something that Peter was so thankful for. Something that we find ourselves thankful for. That you are indeed the friend who forgives. Help us to worship you as we ought, as we continue to reflect now on the greatness of the Lord Jesus. Amen. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. and Thank you for being with us today. Please do stay for tea and coffee and have a blessed remainder of your Sunday. God bless.